SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome back to the CUSA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, real quick, want to thank all of the guests that we've had on so far in the offseason series. Excited to welcome more back as we continue that. Uh, but for now, Joe Lonergan and Eric Henry here with you once again to just kind of recap some of the uh, Conference USA news and notes in the last few weeks. Uh, Eric, excited to talk to you again, buddy. I know we got some uh, some interesting stuff to deal with on this episode. Likewise, bud, it's always a pleasure to come on and talk to you, and I will piggyback off of what you said and want to thank the previous guests that we've had on. Don't want to let the cat out of the bag, uh, the proverbial cat out of the bag, of course, because I'm not holding a cat in a bag or why that's a saying, but I digress. Um, <laughs> we've got, got some more guests coming up in the offseason that we're excited to, uh, to talk about. So like I said, um, don't want to let it out of the bag yet, but we've got some more exciting guests that we think you guys will like. So stay tuned for that. And yeah, man, ready to jump into some news and notes. It's been a while since it's been just you and I. I know. It's funny. I have my my literal cat in my office, and you, you kept saying cat of the bag, and he keeps poking <laughs> his head up like, who's putting cats in bags? Let me at him. <laughs> Um, but with that, let's, let's, uh, jump into some news. Like you said, um, just to start off with Marshall seems like they have their man at, uh, to fill the head coaching vacancy that doc holiday left. Uh, Charles Huff is going to fill that void. He has, uh, previously been the, uh, running backs coach at Alabama. Um, you know, Eric, I'm not sure if you've, you're aware, but Alabama's had some good running backs in the past, uh, decade or so. Um, you know, in, in some of the, uh, projects that Huff has undertaken with the Crimson Tide, Najee Harris, of course, uh, who had a monster year, uh, last year with over 1200 yards, um, you know, and the list kind of goes on and on in terms of the uh, talent that he's coached. But for me, I actually really like this hire. Um, when you look at Marshall's, you know, progress in terms of developing players over the last few years, uh, Brendan Knox is a great example, actually, if we're talking about the running back position, um, you know, we saw him transform from, you know, a solid kind of high school recruit coming out of college to, Obviously, honestly, one of the better uh, running backs in all of the G5 is his last year there. So I really feel like this hire is kind of continuing on that trend that Doc Holliday set of coaches who really know how to develop players. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a fan of the hire as well. And I, I you know, this is not necessarily new news. It's something that happened a couple months ago. But like we said, we haven't had a chance to really kind of give our POV on the hire. And I will let one guest, uh, you know, kind of slip here. We're open to have. Grant Trailer, the Marshall beat writer from the publication up there. Of course, I can never remember the publication when I need to, but we're going to have Grant Trailer on uh, in the near future to discuss all things Marshall in the spring and, of course, his take on the Charles Huff hire. But my POV, I think it's it's interesting, Joe. When you dismiss Doc Holliday, I know that I was a little bit, I don't want to say surprised, because you had heard some rumblings that Thundering Herd fans weren't, they weren't happy with the consistent finishes of, you know, eight and five or nine and four. They felt like they were losing the key games at that. that uh, I guess they felt that coaching was the thing that was holding them back. And, you know, some had felt that the recruiting had tailed off. If there's one thing about Charles Huff that you do know, 
he was one of Nick Saban's, in addition to being his running backs coach and assistant head coach, was one of his ace recruiters there at Alabama. And even if you look at the time since Coach Huff has been on the job, I believe about a couple months now, you know, like I said, since I believe it was early January he was hired, they've already kind of expanded their recruiting base. Uh, coach Huff is from the DMV area, so they've actually expanded their recruiting base into offering kids from you know the Maryland and D.C. area and Virginia's. And I think that's one of the things that Marshall fans would like to see in terms of just increasing the talent on that roster and like you mentioned they've performed well with guys like brendan knox and you know they'd have young quarterback grand wells i think the biggest thing is we're probably going to see a shift in philosophy into seeing more 38 35 wins you know more 42 42 35 wins i, I think you're going to see a more exciting marshall team but i i do have to admit joe when doc holiday's contract initially was not renewed Maybe, maybe I am someone who is is too complacent, you know, and, and and understands that it's hard to win football games. I just thought it was a little bit surprising for a guy who has been a very successful coach over you know more than a decade at Marshall to kind of I don't want to say unceremon- unceremoniously <laughs> be dismissed, but it, it felt as if there was just maybe it was it was time for both sides. You know, maybe Doc Holiday felt underappreciated. And maybe the the powers would be there. Um, there's rumors that you know the the governor had come into play and and, and things of that nature. But um, maybe the powers that be there it just it needed to be a clean break for both sides. But all in all, I do think that Coach Huff Charles Huff is a good hire, and we'll see how it plays out with the herd. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think sometimes when you have these uh, these coaches that stick around for as long as Doc Holliday did, um, you're kind of bound to have some. You know, I feel like it's more common than people think for, you know, relationships to go sour. I'm not saying that happens between Doc Holliday and the Marshall, uh, you know, administration, but I can certainly understand if that was the case. Um, But I mean, on the note of Charles Huff, um, you know, I do feel like this is a step in the right direction for them. He's uh, he's relatively young. I think he fits, you know the trend of what they're looking for in head coach as well. And, you know, I think uh, Thundering Herd fans are, you know, might not happen right away, but I think they'll be uh, relatively pleased with the uh, end result come, you know, this time next year, probably. Yeah, absolutely. And really quick, I just want to touch on one thing. I know I use an abbreviation there. I, I just want to make sure I'm not speaking code that, you know, only I know when I said Charles Huff is from the DMV area, of course, that's a D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. He's a, a native of Denton, Maryland. So I just want to make sure that that, uh, that that's stated when I say he's re- expanded the recruiting base into the DMV area. They've already um, looking at the, the list right here. They've already offered over a dozen kids from that D.C., Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. So in addition to um, Coach Holiday, who had a lot of success recruiting Florida. If you look at Marshall's roster, they always had a dozen or 15 guys from Florida. That's probably really good as well for the recruiting that they're going to expand into a, a fertile territory and probably compete with ODU, of course, in conference, but the Virginias, the Marylands, and, and teams of that nature for that talent that's in there as well. Tons of talent in D.C., Maryland, Virginia, not the Department of Motor Vehicles. Um, <laughs> <right>. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, recruiting grounds, uh, I think we've talked about it a little bit when we were discussing Old Dominion. But Virginia is definitely, right. especially on the rise in terms of high school players coming out of there, getting big opportunities in in CFB. Uh, but that's the that's the topic of another podcast, I feel. Um 
with that, let's talk about D'Angelo Malone coming back for another year at Western Kentucky. Um, obviously, Malone has had a really solid college career up to this point. CUSA Defensive Player of the Year under his belt, had another good year uh, this year, despite you know WKU underperforming. Um, but you know, I think in terms of what Tyson Helton is trying to build there, which you know we'll dive into a little bit later in the show, but this is a big piece for them, um, especially when they were you know, kind of losing leaders left and right uh, to the transfer portal. Joe, you hit the nail on the head right there when you talk about losing leaders. And yes, they lost guys like Kyle Bailey to the transfer portal, but even, you know, Devin Key to graduation and Gage Walker, who chose to graduate as well. Gage Walker was a guy who I thought might take advantage of the additional year that was provided by the NCAA, given the fact that he had an excellent 2019 year. 2020, you know, was a little bit up and down towards the end, until the end of the year, excuse me, I said shit, I should say. Uh, kind of broke out against FIU, as unfortunately for Panther fans, a lot of running backs in CUSA have over the past few seasons. But we talk about Malone. Joe, just look at the numbers. 41 and a half tackles for loss in his career. Over the past two years, 20 and a half tackles for loss in 2019. The abbreviated year last year, 11 games, but 10 and a half tackles for loss. 17 sacks over the past two years. 100 tackles in 2019, 71 in 2020. Joe, I, I, I was genuinely surprised because I kind of thought, you know, while you mentioned it, you had a little bit of a dip in production this year. That's going to happen when you break out the way you do in 2019 and teams are prioritizing, you know, double and triple teaming you. And of course, you know, all the things that surrounded this year with COVID, I just felt he had nothing left to prove. But maybe he got some information that said, hey, you know, you come back for a full year and maybe this is a deep defensive end draft and you come back and you repeat the years that uh, the performance you had in 2019 and Maybe he gets that, you know, Marcus Davenport type of draft selection where he's a first round pick. I don't know. I, I feel very confident saying D'Angelo Malone will play on Sundays and would have played on Sundays had he left this year. But he's back. And that's, a you know, a great gain for the folks there in Bowling Green. One thousand percent. I mean, as a, you know, outspoken Western Kentucky football proponent, um, I I'm obviously happy that Malone came back, but like you mentioned, he definitely is going to have success or at least the opportunity to have success on Sundays. And I mean, if you just look at like his body type, even, you know, with the length that he has and that, you know, that swim move and and the first step off the ball, he has the ideal body type and skill set for what, um, you know, defensive ends and uh, just edge rushers in the NFL you know, need to succeed right now. You know, it's, we've, we've talked about that ad nauseum and you compare him to guys like just in terms of body type to guys like, you know, Jadavian Clowney and, you know, a few more, uh, Bruce Irvin kind of comes to mind, but regardless, um, a really good, um, what's the word retention for, Western Kentucky football moving into Absolutely. this offseason here. And uh, hopefully he can continue to be a leader of that defense for the tops. Um, heading down the road to the other side of the 100 miles of hate, let's talk about MTSU and uh, some of the news out of there. Um, Rick Stockstill, head coach, has been uh, the topic of some discussion um, the last couple of months for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, there was a internal investigation at MTSU that found that uh, his hiring of his son, Brent, um, violated the university's nepotism policies. And uh, while that is the case, doesn't look like there's going to be any additional discipline or or anything like that. And, you know, Eric, I'm curious to get your take. Here's here's kind of my two cents, I guess. Um, While 
you, you obviously see this kind of thing all the time, not just in football, not just in athletics, but really all over the place, right? It only makes sense that, you know, people who have positions of power are going to do everything they can to make sure that their, you know, children, the people they love are set up to succeed. And, you know, in this case, I think, you know, a, a, someone like Brent, who's a football IQ and, you know, skill set for coaching are obviously extremely high. And I think he would have found success regardless, even if he hadn't, you know, accepted this particular position with MTSU. Um, you know, it's bound to rub some people the wrong way. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. Okay. So this was a situation that I, I just found, you know, it's nuanced. Mm-hmm. Joe, this is this is what I want to say. So absolutely. There is no doubt when you look at Brent Stockstill's resume since the time he graduated, of course, you know, former four-year starter Middle Tennessee, he left and was a GA at FAU under Lane Kiffin, then left and took a role with USF under Jeff Scott. And quite frankly, this is the natural trajectory of coaches. You know, I, 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 there's nothing wrong with saying if Brent Stockstill had taken the job anywhere else, it probably wouldn't receive as much scrutiny and no one bad an eye. This is just a normal course of, of a coaching career. What seems to be the situation at play is the interview process. And this is the thing that rubs me the wrong way. Rick Stockstill is more than entitled to make the hire that he believes is best for his program. And like I preface my statements with, Brent Stockstill is sufficiently, you know, he, he is he is sufficient in terms of his his coaching tenure to have this role. But were there other candidates who weren't looked at, right? Who were not looked at equally because that is Rick Stockstill's son? I don't know. Only Rick Stockstill can answer that question. But I think that's the question you're looking to address here when talking about the macro level issue of diversity in coaching and you know people getting their opportunities. And I think, and just follow me, Joe, and for the listeners, I apologize, just follow me here and I'll kind of make this make sense here at the end. Um, we've taught, and once again, this is not Rick Stockstill's issue to fix. <laughs> Diversity in, in coaching uh, and in a lot of sports has been an issue for years and it's not going to be fixed by one man. But when you look at the lack of minority head coaches and coordinators and things of that nature, it starts with them getting the opportunities. So if you look, especially on the offensive side of the ball, with a lot of head coaches in college football these days tend to trending towards the offensive side of the football, it's about getting that role as position coach and then getting that role to an offensive coordinator and then potentially being a head coach. I spoke with former FIU offensive coordinator, now UCF offensive coordinator, Tim Harris Jr. for a piece, uh, ad nauseum about that for probably about an hour and a half. I, I could you know, go on and on about that. But hear me out, Joe. Brent Stockstill would probably be a collegiate head coach in 10 years. There's no reason to think he doesn't have the mind for it and the drive and the passion. And if he wants to be a head coach, more than likely in a decade at 33, 34, he would be right there. But you have to look at it and think, Joe, and please, if I'm wrong, feel free to check me, that him getting this role at Middle Tennessee is the difference between maybe him coaching for another six, seven years and getting that head coaching role or at six, seven, eight, nine years, or when Rick Stockstill, re, you know, inevitably retires in a handful of years, Rick Stockstill, I believe, is 65 years of age. Brent Stockstill getting a head coaching role at 27, 28, 
after five years. And it's situations like that that you have to take a look at when you want to truly examine the macro level issue of diversity in coaching. And I, and I hope I said that in a way that does all parties justice and is sufficient. And again, I'm not saying that's Rick Stockdale's issue to fix. I'm just kind of laying the groundwork to sit, to kind of give an example as to how that happens. Yeah, no, I think you uh, raise a lot of good points about this kind of hiring practice. And, I, you know, I, I, I guess my thought is, while I agree that it's, you know, kind of unfortunate that these kind of hires don't give other candidates the same kind of opportunities and the same kind of consideration. I, I guess part of the reason this doesn't really strike a chord with me, I guess, is it's, I don't think it's going anywhere. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I, I don't really know what can realistically be done to convince, you know, uh, these people to not give, at these people what gives you know coaches and hiring managers in general um you know i don't think there's anything that's going to discourage them from considering you know familiar relations for these kind of opportunities especially in situations like this where like you mentioned brent stock still is a solid coach and likely will continue to be a solid coach for a long time um so, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't really know what I'm trying to say there. I guess I just like, I completely agree with, with you in that it's, it, it sucks that a lot of attention is not being paid to candidates who also would make great coaches, but I don't know. It's just kind of the way of the world, unfortunately. Yeah, no. And I, I'll wrap it up quick, Joe. I, I mean, I'm can't disagree with the point you're making. Right. And I'm not here to tell anybody how to hire People generally are going to hire people who they're comfortable with. And in this case, it's the man's son, you know, who might tell him, you know, not to make that hire in that case. I'm just mm -hmm. trying to, for those who may want um, or may be interested, I hope if you listen to this pod, you're interested in the, in the POVs we have, a different POV. I just want to lay that out so you kind of see the groundwork as to how that um, how that runs counterintuitive of maybe expanding the coaching um, coaching base and diversity in coaching. So I'll leave it with that. Yes. And to tie it all up with a Parks and Rec reference, it's not like Brent Stockstill is Bobby Newport, who just has no eye for the family business. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Are, are you a Parks and Rec guy, Eric? I don't know if we've talked about this. Joe, I was going to laugh through it and go to the next topic, but since you brought it up, this is just one of those cultural things. I, 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 don't, know many, <laughs> I don't know how many brothers are watching uh, Park and Rec, but guess what? <laughs> that, that's, why, that's why people listen to this podcast, because you bring a certain POV, and I bring a certain POV. So I was just going to keep it moving, but hey, Joe brought it up, and uh, you know I knocked that one out of the park. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, man. It, Parks and Rec is worth your time for i will for say this really worth. quick aubrey, aubrey plaza right park and rec parks and rec yeah yeah all right yeah, i i know her but that's because i find aubrey plaza attractive i digress continue <laughs> i'm sure there are plenty of our, our female listeners who feel the same way about chris pratt but anyway <laughs> um mtsu another kind of controversy they're dealing with right now um you know it's been in the news that uh their former uh, assistant coach, Tony Franklin, did not, uh, you know, was not around for this uh, spring. Um, 
So I, I really encourage you all to check out the Washington Post article about this subject by Kent Babb from January 19th of, of 2021. Goes into a lot of depth about all the nuances of this situation. Um, but, you know, for the interest of time, uh, Franklin and uh, Rick Stockstill disagreed about the uh, safety measures that should be taken in bringing players back to campus Um you know, this past fall uh, to get the football season played and, and that sort of thing. Um, and it, it it got ugly between the two of them. Um, and that eventually led to uh, Franklin resigning. Um, so it's it's super, you know, interesting in that it really doesn't paint uh, Rick in a Rick Stock still in a great light. Um, and it's it's especially, you know, sad for uh, Franklin and that he was only a, you know, to use the, uh, old cop movie cliche really close to retirement. So, um, but it, it's, it's just so crazy that, you know, there wasn't, um, an amicable solution between these two guys. Um, there's, you know, workplace disputes happen every day, but you know, when they happen in the uh, context of college football, there's just going to be a little extra light on it, I guess. So, um, you know, I think Franklin will, we'll see him, in football again, um, in some kind of role, it's clear he, you know, doesn't want to be a coach forever. He wants to do his time and, and get done. But, uh, all this to say, you know, I think this kind of raises, you know, some interesting points about, uh, just how college football approach the coronavirus situation as a whole. And, you know, ultimately while I, you know, I think we were bound to have situations like what apparently happened at, at MTSU and, you know, it, it might be the subject of another discussion, but clearly there were players who felt that, you know, Stockstill and, and MTSU as a whole did not handle the entire virus situation the right way. Um, but ultimately, I think as a whole, college football handled the coronavirus as well as it could, um, you know, within reason. But, um, you know, this is this is, you know, kind of a, an interesting example of what I think was bound to happen with with some of these guys. Yeah. So, you know, I want to say a couple of things off the top here, just so we have them on the record. One, A.D. Chris Massaro there in Middle Tennessee and, and their investigation found no wrongdoing. So, you know, that is this is for the record. And that's not to dispute what Tony Franklin's saying. I just feel like it, it, for an interest of, you know, both sides, we haven't had Rick Stockstill on the podcast to speak his piece. So we should at least state that for the record. B, you know, I've met Rick Stockstill twice. Um, I had a chance to hop on their Zoom for the FIU week. And, and I've also met him at CUSA media days and, you know, uh, and after full disclosure, he's always been nothing but, you know, cordial and, and, uh, and a uh, professional, you know, when I've encountered with him. And that's not to say that it skews my POV of the situation. I just, again, you know, because we don't have coach stocks or a representative from middle Tennessee on the record, I feel, you know, we should at least present that side. With that being said, it's a pandemic, man. <laughs> you know, you, if I, I'm not, in no way am I trying to downplay what Tony Franklin's saying, because there's a lot in that Washington Post piece that if you want his POV, please take the time to check out and read it. Um, but you could argue the entire ethics of playing football during a pandemic because of the nature of the way football has to be played. I would look at FIU. You know, obviously that's a team I know most intricately because I, I cover them. And they had coaches, assistant coaches come down with coronavirus. That That is is stated for a fact. Butch Davis came out and said it, that there were times that 
they couldn't fully practice because not only did they lack bodies because of injuries and COVID restrictions, they didn't have enough assistant coaches to be out there to coach, you know, and how do you go out there and try to play a season that way? So to your point, you're almost damned if you do damned, if you don't, in terms of your approach of how to go about doing it. Uh, if you look at middle Tennessee, if memory serves me correct, they went three and six, three and six this year, excuse me. So I believe they made it through nine games. If memory serves me correct. And it's just, it's, it's a unique situation. You go back and look at the relationship between Tony Franklin and Rick Stockstill. This wasn't their first go around, you know, Tony Franklin coach was offensive coordinator and QB coach in 2009 and middle Tennessee returned in 2016 after a stint at Cal. So it's not like clearly at one point in time, the relationship was solid. And for whatever reason, you know, this year um, or entering this year, uh, there seemed to be a difference uh, of opinion in terms of, you know, how they want to go about handling that. I, again, you know, I, I feel it's it's right to provide both sides. And again, Rick Stockstill and, and their investigation there, Middle Tennessee found no wrongdoing. But it's almost like, how do you conduct? You're trying to, it's like you're, you're trying to conduct a football season as safely as you can during a pandemic. You know, like how how do you do that? Um, so that's just kind of my my POV on it. Again, for those who, who have not, um, aren't familiar with the story, I'd go and read the Washington Post piece and then also go back and, and read the DNJ uh, there in Murfreesboro. You know, the reporters there, um, unfortunately, I'm forgetting. I believe it's Cecil Joyce is a new beat reporter there for Middle Tennessee. Uh, they've written some things as far as, you know, the other side is Middle Tennessee's piece. So all in all, trying to do this year during a pandemic, I think we're going to see a lot of situations where you look back five, 10 years from now and realize, man, yes, we made it through a football season and, and that's great. And we certainly as football fans are happy that we did, but it, it how difficult it was to do that during a pandemic. I, I look forward to talking to Butch Davis, you know, five years down the road and asking him how, how you know, a couple of years removed from this year, how difficult was the 2020 season and some of those assistants. Cause I think we're going to get some incredible stories of how challenging it was to um, conduct football as normal, you know, in a pandemic. Yeah. I mean, football is already a, a dangerous game. And when you add the whole pandemic situation to the equation, it, it absolutely does not make anything easier. Um, but like you said, it, it's kind of a nuanced issue for sure. Um, hopefully we can get a representative from MTSU in the next couple of months to kind of provide their POV on, on everything that happens um, just so we can, you know, see both sides. And I don't know, I know I'd love to kind of talk to Tony Franklin about it too, just to kind of hear both, both sides, but based on what's what's out there now it's um it's certainly an interesting situation and you know kind of one of the more notable examples of workplace differences in in college football over the last couple of years i think i know i mean nothing more i can really add there it's just you know like i said i think when we look when we go down the road and and you go you know a few years removed from this i think a lot of coaches around the country are going to talk about hey you know how difficult it was to even things like you know, how often do you do Zoom meetings versus in person and trying to communicate and things of that nature and keeping the team in certain quarters? I think we're going to have a lot of interesting stories with the benefit of hindsight and time as far as, you know, how difficult it was to, to do things and how successful or not successful um, teams were. Eric, are we going to be that generation that when we talk to our grandkids, we're going to say things like back in my day, we had to do meetings via Zoom calls and they're going to be like, shut up, old man. <laughs> like, I'm already that way now. Like I was going to debate my little sister the other day about like GPS and, and you know, her reliance upon GPS. I'm like, I don't need you to read a map, but can you at least look up and tell me like how many blocks you've gone? So 
I'm already that man. <laughs> God, I, I still, not to get too off topic, but I still remember when we had GPSs like not in the phone. Like I remember right. having like a Garmin like suction cup to the inside of my windshield so that I could like know where the hell I was driving around the East Coast. Exactly. Uh, uh, but you know, more, more coaching news, um, to get into with NCUSA here, a couple coordinator hires. Uh, first of all, North Texas has hired former SMU coach Phil Bennett as its next defensive coordinator. Um, personally, you know, Eric, I feel like that's going to be, you know, it's a step in the right direction for, um, North Texas. I think if you look at what SMU has done over the last couple of years, they know how to play against, you know, fast paced teams. There's certainly plenty of them in the American conference. Um, so I think Bennett should add a lot of what North Texas needs right now. And, you know, getting those defensive players to be ready for some of the more high paced offenses, uh, that they'll inevitably face in CUSA. Joe, the fact of the matter is North Texas defenses are trending in the wrong direction. This is the third defensive coordinator as many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, Phil Bennett, um, Troy Reffitt, and of course, I'm, I'm forgetting uh, Clint Bowen. There he goes, the defensive coordinator last year. They allowed 42.8 points. Good enough for 126 out of 128 teams. Uh, the year prior, they allowed 32 points, which is 105th out of 130. So they've really got to get the defense going. Like you mentioned, one thing that North Texas knows how to do is put the ball in the end zone. If they are not stopping teams sufficiently, um, it's not going to help Seth Luttrell's tenure there, you know, in terms of someone who was really one of the hot coaching names, as uh, I believe Chris Vanini came on and said that with us and go back a couple of years ago. He was a guy who was looking at, you know, maybe being a, a P5 head coach. And right now he's just looking to get this program heading back in the right direction as far as a, a winning record. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I think this is a step in the right direction in order to do that. Um, But I guess only time will tell. Uh, Meanwhile, at MTSU, they are hiring or they rather they have hired uh, former Kansas offensive coordinator Brent Deerman. Uh, He hopefully can, uh, you know, add some juice to that offense that, uh, you know, like we just talked about, uh, lost a lot of weapons this offseason. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we'll talk about a little bit about it. We've talked about, you know, former MTSU quarterback Asher O'Hara. He's him being such a dual threat dynamic guy and just how the offense was molded around him. We're going to see a shift in offensive philosophy. One of the things that I had noted when I, you know, been writing some uh, spring previews and things of that nature is that when you look at Middle Tennessee, since Itavis Mather is in 2016, if memory serves me correct, the most rushing yards they've had from a running back is 605. That was from Shatan Mobley in 2018. Uh, the last full year, 2019, Shatan Mobley had 210 yards for a season from the running back position. Last year, I believe he had just a shade over 300 yards. So basically, a lot of the rushing attack is coming from the quarterback. And not to say that that can't be sufficient, but I think they want to get a little bit more of a traditional style offense. So you're going to see more of a pro style uh, quarterback, and that'll open up things for some of the talented running backs, guys like Amir Rasul and Martel Petway, a couple of Power 5 transfers they had last year who chose to opt out of the, the 2020 season. That'll open things up for them. So I, I think all in all, it, um, it's a uh, it's a good hire, um, especially given what they're trying to do and kind of move into more of a traditional style offense. Absolutely. Meanwhile, at Rice, uh, Cal tight ends coach Marquise Tuya Sosipo, I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. If I'm not, I apologize. Uh, to fill their vacated offensive coordinator role there. Uh, if you're not familiar with uh, with <laughs> Coach Tia Sosipo, uh, was a quarterback in the NFL for a while. Um, 
has been at Cal for the past uh, three years, I believe, um, was with Washington before that. But, you know, I think this is a, a solid hire. I think based on the kind of systems that he's been able to be around, I think it's absolutely something that uh, Coach Bloomgren needed to add to his staff and, and especially in the, just in the sense of like, developing a more lethal offense, you know, with some of the teams that, that Rice has had the last couple of years, obviously they've had a lot of, you know, weaknesses, but um, I definitely think, you know, consistent offensive production and quarterback play is something that they especially need. And um, as someone who has experience working as a uh, passing game coordinator within a, a P5 program at, at UCLA and uh, in Washington, um, and then obviously uh, Cal most recently, I think he's going to add a dimension to that Rice offense that's sorely needed. I'm going to jump in and help you out, my friend. See, like I said, we're the yin to the yang. We're, we're, we're that for each other. Marcus Tuiasa Sopo, the former, uh, was it Stanford quarterback? Or no, Washington, former Washington quarterback. Yes. Um, yeah, that, uh, that, that's how you pronounce the name there. I know that because uh, he was a backup with the Raiders. Or I remember his tenure there, and uh, he had like a couple of brothers. I think his brother Zach was a fullback for the for the Eagles. Uh, I think he had another brother who played uh, um, in the majors. I think he pitched with the Mariners. Memory serves me correct, so that's pronunciation on that name. That aside, definitely a solid hire. You know, for him to be able to, for him being Mike Bloomgren, to be able to get someone with that kind of um, offensive coordinator experience is huge. Uh, I look at his resume here. I know that he had gone back and did some work with Washington, his, his uh, alma mater, but also. Passing game coordinator UCLA, associate head coach at USC, passing game coordinator, uh, recruiting coordinator at Cal. So, you know, also bringing some big time experience. And I think uh, that is a solid hire uh, at the offensive corner position. Absolutely. Uh, and then at UTEP, uh, Bradley Dale Pivito is now their uh, defensive coordinator there. Um, most recently, he was a linebackers coach at Texas AM and uh, actually coached with. Uh, Dana Dimmel back at Houston like 20 years ago. So uh, some interesting chemistry added to the coaching staff there. And, you know, UTEP, a program on the rise, in my opinion. So hopefully this helps out with that mission. Yeah, over there at UTEP, they replaced both of their coordinators. So I think that's a move that for Dana Dimmel, you know, entering year four of the rebuild, they've got some talent they've shown, you know, at the quarterback position, uh, running back Deion Hankins, some of the, the receivers coming back as well. So uh, we'll see how the new coordinating hires go. But uh, I think all in all, uh, this will definitely be a telling year for UTEP and, and uh, as far as that rebuild goes. Yeah, for sure. And uh, speaking of, of rebuilding, you know, Western Kentucky is another program that's that's taken into this as we're kind of moving through topics here. We have uh, 13 of the 16 signees for, for Western Kentucky coming into the program this year from the transfer portal. Um, that includes some really interesting names. For me, the most, uh, you know, splashy one is Bailey Zappi, who was the quarterback at Houston Baptist last year. You know, if nothing else, I hope that can at least light a fire under Tyrell Pigram um, after kind of a, in my opinion, subpar performance from him last year. Um, but, you know, I think this is a, an interesting step for Tyson Helton. You know, obviously they, they lost a lot to graduation and the transfer portal in the offseason. But, you know, it seems like they at least did their part in trying to make up for it there. Yeah, Joe, I think it's really interesting. You know, I'll kind of go through this really quickly here if we can, you know, touch on that as we get close to the season. But with Western Kentucky, the approach they took, and I think a lot of football, um, college football teams, excuse me, were kind of in this position is given the additional year and the fact that, you know, wouldn't count towards players' eligibility as well as the transfer portal, 
they only signed four players. Excuse me, they signed two players from from high school this year. Uh, the rest of them, they have one JUCO, uh, and then you know I believe two, um, two or three from high school. The rest, and I'm looking at it here, it's I believe that count is at 14 now that they got out of the transfer portal. So it's going to be an interesting approach, you know. I think for some people, and we talked about this when we had uh, Washington Kentucky beat writer on right now. Of course, his name is escaping me, but um, when we um, uh, had him on, we talked about the fact that their approach essentially is they're in win now mode, right? It's not going to be about necessarily um preparing for the future it's hey we have guys who may have two or three years of, of recruiting of, of eligibility left and we're going to try to go ahead and win now and uh, i think it's an interesting approach i think it's one that while you might sacrifice a little bit of your future um i think it's going to be it it, it it if you're a hilltopper fan you're probably you know really happy because of the fact that hey we know we're going for it right now as opposed to necessarily um you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 uh, freshmen that you're waiting on to, to develop two, three years down the road. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree with that. It, it's clear that Helson, Helton wants to win now, and that's why they, they made such a push for all these guys. I will say, I feel like it's going to be harder than a lot of people think to get, you know, 13 transfer players to mesh into that system all at once. Oh, oh, there's there's no doubt about it. I mean, that that you have guys are coming from different programs. That's certainly something that's going to be interesting. But again, you know, I think if you're a Western Kentucky fan, you've got to be happy with with, you know, the move as far as saying, hey, uh, we're going to go for it now. We're going to reload, you know, and, and you mentioned Tyrell Pigram as far as the year he had and Bailey Zappi, you know, we've talked about him as far as the credentials that he brings from the, uh, the FCS level. So I, I think I think it'll be interesting as far as just like you mentioned, you know, how those guys mesh. And it, Jared McDonald was, was the beat writer I was thinking of. Sorry about that, Jared. I, I was just trying to rack my brain there as we get ready to close this episode. But, yeah, I think it's an interesting approach and one that uh, could pay immediate dividends with bringing in Houston Baptist's offensive coordinator as well as Bailey Zappi. So the whole offensive philosophy will shift uh, in that direction. And hopefully, the, you know, the transfers can jump on and they'll be there for the spring and, and you know, hit the ground running. Absolutely. Uh, so let's jump into a, a few notable transfers in and out of CUSA. Uh, first, um, let's start with Blaze Aldridge uh, transferring out of Rice. Um, that's a tough loss for the Owls. You know, we just mentioned that um, they're trying to put it together uh, still under Mike Bloomgren. I think they've won like seven games in three years, something like that. But uh, Aldridge, I think, was one of, if not their best player last year. So replacing him at linebacker is going to be extremely difficult. Blaze Aldridge, I'll make it short and sweet, was one of the top defensive players in Conference USA during his tenure. You know, arrived from a JUCO, a uh, kid from down the road in, in Orlando, and, you know, really balled out. I think his loss, it's going to mean guys like Treshawn Chamberlain, who's kind of a jack-of-all-trades, a hybrid safety nickel corner linebacker, uh, pound for pound, maybe one of the best players in CUSA. It's going to allow for you know guys like him to maybe step up and fill that role. But especially when you're trying to get the rebuild going, you want as many of those guys to not go to the Power Five. So it's a tough loss that he is now in Missouri. Absolutely. And uh, another CUSA talent being lost to the P5. Uh, former Old Dominion defensive end Keon White is now at Georgia Tech. So uh, the Yellow Jackets get a, a solid uh, big man up front to uh, bolster their front seven there. 
Keon White had a heck of a 2019 season. I mean, he was a guy who was really primed for that, I'll say, Alex Highsmith kind of breakout year. If you look at Alex Highsmith before he had his excellent 2019 season, he was a guy who you know had a ton of tackle for loss, but not quite the sacks. That was Keon White. Keon White had 19 tackles for loss, but I believe only three and a half sacks. You knew if 2020 had you know been a normal year, he would have broken out and really been a guy who've had double digit sacks and has a you know power five body, power five talent, former tight end. Um, so again, ODU loss now Georgia Tech's gain. And uh, another loss for Old Dominion defensive back Caleb Ford Demet uh, entered the transfer portal. I don't believe he's ended up anywhere quite yet, uh, but. You know, another tough loss for uh, Old Dominion's defense, and uh, you know we'll we'll see where he ends up. This one actually came out just recently, Joe, that he landed at UCLA, so he does have a home. But Caleb Ford Dement was one of the top corners in Conference USA in terms of Pro Football Focus had him rated as one of the you know best guys in coverage. He's a guy probably at, at UCLA will probably be that. You know, um, it's a position that defenses are placing a lot of emphasis on now, which is that nickel corner, that slot corner at his size. He's probably going to step right in and you know make a, a, a huge impact there at UCLA. And it won't shock me to see him at the next level as well. Definitely think he would have gotten there from from ODU made second team all CUSA in 2019. But again, hey, that's the, the way it works. Right. You know, it's the uh, power five green breeding ground, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to be that way. Um, and then we have a FCS transfer into Rice. Uh, quarterback Jake Constantine uh, played 24 games at Weber State, uh, started 23 of those, um, won two big sky titles, two trips to the playoffs. Um, you know, I think, you know, after only two seasons, he's in the top. He's uh, number 11th, actually, in Weber State's career uh, passing yardage record books. So, um, you know, we talked about Rice kind of needing some help on, along the offense, and uh, this is certainly, you know, a, a good addition in that regard. Yeah, so the thing you know about him is he can play. He certainly showed that, you know, again, in terms of him rewriting the record books there at Weber State, and he initially was a guy who signed with Boise State. So you know he's got that, you know, big-time potential. Um, you know, I think the belief, if my memory serves me correct, I believe he um, – had 15 touchdowns in 2019. I think he had 11 or 12 in 2018. Want to see his interceptions come down a little bit because I think he threw something like 24 or 23 or 22 interceptions during his career there. Put the numbers there really quick as I'm doing on the fly here. Yeah, uh, 18 touchdowns and 15. So 33 touchdowns and 22 interceptions. So maybe want to see him you know protect the football a little bit. But uh, all in all, good pickup for us. One more new quarterback to talk about here. Bailey Hawkman, most recently quarterback at uh, NC State, uh, will join the program at MTSU. Uh, obviously, with the departure of Asher O'Hara, uh, MTSU's offense has some work to do, uh, but this is a step in the right direction there. Yeah, I'll make this one short and sweet. Former four-star recruit initially signed with Florida State, then went the Juco route, then went NC State. Um, certainly a talented guy. I think he'll kind of fit the mold of that pro style that uh, the new offensive coordinator there, Brent Dierman, is looking to run and definitely gives, you know, Rick Stockstill, someone who's used to having quarterback talent, whether it's been, you know, his son or Asher O'Hara, definitely gives another talented guy behind center. Absolutely. Uh, plenty of zigs and zags on the road to success in college football. Uh, we'll try to keep it as straightforward as we can uh, on the next episode of the CUSA Underdog Podcast. Uh, new episodes every week, so make sure you subscribe to there. 
Um, and if you want to follow us on Twitter at J O E H I O underscore Eric C Henry underscore, and then at underdog dynasty is the site. Um, uh, and then check out the, uh, main site underdogdynasty.com for more G five football content every day as we move toward a new, uh, hopefully Corona free season. Um, Eric, good to talk to you again, buddy. And, uh, everybody out there, happy football watching. We'll talk to you again soon. 